This week I read an article about the worst feelings in the world. The worst feelings in the world. The first thing on the list was when you get your sock wet. That's a bad feeling, isn't it? There's some other bad things. Another one was um, when you get stuck in an elevator. That's like the worst feeling. Another one was losing your wallet. Okay. You might not feel that one so bad, but back when you couldn't just pay for stuff on your phone and cut off your, like, your Apple Pay or whatever, like, it, was, it hurt really bad to, to lose your wallet. Maybe a better one for you is like losing your phone. How many people have lost their phone? Like lost, gone. You all got like find iPhone now, so you'll, you'll be able to find it. But there's a certain like pit in your stomach when something like that happens, like, oh, that's bad. I lost my phone. Or maybe you broke your phone or you, maybe you broke your screen or something like that. And you, you turn the phone over and you look and see and the screen is just cracked everywhere. And it's like your heart just drops into your stomach. It's a horrible feeling. Well, that's a bad feeling. But the Bible says there's a feeling that's even worse than that. And it's, it's a feeling we're going to talk about tonight. And it's an uncomfortable feeling. But I want you to think about it. Probably a feeling that you've experienced. And that's the feeling of guilt. Guilt. What are we talking about when we say guilt? Well, when we do what's wrong and we know we're caught. That might be a bad feeling, but I want to tell you tonight that when you feel guilty for bad things that you've done, it's not actually a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing that God allows you to feel guilty. We're going to look at a passage tonight where David, the author that we've been reading basically this whole time in the book of Psalms, says, there was a time when I felt guilty because I was guilty. It was like his heart went in his stomach. His stomach almost like hurt. He said in, in one part in this passage that his whole body, his bones even, felt like he, they were wasting away because of his guilt. But there's good news. He says that you can be forgiven from that guilt. That terrible pit in your stomach feeling can go from that to a feeling of, of freedom and joy that your guilt has been taken away. But the question that we should all have before we even look at this text is whether or not that guilt hangs over you or whether or not you have been freed from that guilt. And for some of you, you might not know at this point. You might think, when I ask you the question, hey, are you a real Christian yet? Are your sins forgiven? For some of you, you would say, I know for sure that I am. Others of you would say, I know for sure that I'm not. Some of you, many, maybe many of you, are in that middle zone where it's like, I don't really know. Well, this passage is going to be super helpful for you. It's helpful for both sides, but especially for you if you feel like you're in the middle and you don't know where you are because this passage says you can go from having all that guilt that you deserve because everything that you've done in life has been caught, so to speak. You're caught. You're stuck. God saw it all. And that should make you feel guilty. That should put a, a pit in your stomach, so to speak. But what this text is going to tell us is that you can be forgiven. Not just kind of forgiven, not just partially forgiven, but this text says that you can be totally and completely fully forgiven. So I want you to grab a Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 32. Turn to Psalm 32 here. Psalm 32 is David talking, and he actually writes two Psalms that are similar to this. I think that this Psalm might have actually been written after the other Psalm. What am I talking about? Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are similar because in those two Psalms, David talks about how he was guilty and then how he was forgiven. And what he's going to describe in this passage is how you go from one to the other. How do we go from having the pit in our stomach of I feel guilty for what I've done, the stuff that maybe nobody else knows about, but I know God knows about. How do I go from that to rejoicing and being happy and being set free from that? How is that possible? Can you really be forgiven? Well, this passage says that you can. Check it out. Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. Here's what he says. Blessed is the one, or happy, really happy, is the person whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression means when you have God's law and you go the other way. It's like you know you're supposed to do something and then you choose not to do it. It says, when all those bad things that you've done, you've chosen to disobey your parents, you've chosen to have bad, bad attitudes, you've chosen to use language that's inappropriate, you've chosen to watch things you shouldn't, You've chosen to listen to music that you shouldn't, and you like know that you shouldn't, but you did it. Blessed is the person whose transgression and law-breaking has been forgiven. What forgiven means is that the debt is just released. What forgiven like literally means is to be lifted, like something's lifted off your back. It's like you've got this guilt weighing you down, and something happens where now that guilt is lifted off. He says, blessed is the person whose guilt, his transgression, is forgiven. 
Then it says, whose sin is covered. That's another picture for what it looks like to be forgiven. That your sin, although you did it, and it's forever etched into reality. You've done something that's bad. You can't take it back. You can't fix it. You can't change it. But God says it can be covered. Like you throw a big blanket over it. That although you don't want anyone to see it, it's like, no, God can take it and say, we're not going to consider it anymore. It's covered, atoned for. It says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin, but what it really means is for something to be twisted. It's like you had the right thing and now you're twisting it and now you're, you're doing something that maybe God might say for you to do, but now you're doing it wrongly, right? You're obeying your parents, but with a bad attitude, right? You're, you're saying, oh, I'm going to school, I'm doing my homework, but you're cheating on the test, right? It's like, I'm doing the right thing, but you know, I'm actually doing the wrong thing. It says, blessed is the person against whose account God doesn't count any of that iniquity. Like all that bad stuff that you know that you've done and the bad stuff that I've done, this text says, you're blessed and happy if God doesn't count that against you. That's what you need. That's what I need. We all need our sins to be covered in some way. It says, in whose spirit there's no t- deceit. Like they're not hiding stuff. Right? They can be honest and forthcoming because they're not doing these evil things. Verse three says, for when I kept silent, there was a time where he did not deal with his guilt. He pushed it aside. It says, when I did that, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. It's like he was physically sick because he didn't confess his sin. It's like he did something who was really bad and it hurt for so long. He was like wrestling with God. Look what verse four says. It says, guess who was the one who made it hard for him? It wasn't David who made it hard for himself. It was God who did this to him. Verse four says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. It's like God was pressing this guy. Maybe you felt guilt like this, where you did what was wrong, and instead of asking for forgiveness, and instead of praying about it, you just try to forget about it, and you try to push it away and push it away, but then all of a sudden, it comes up, and it feels like God is smashing your face in with his finger. It's like, oh, like you're just pressed in. That's what this says. Your hand is heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It's like I, I had no water for a long time. I was exhausted. That's what it felt like. There's a word there, selah, that comes after verse four, which in the text, what we think this actually means is like, they're supposed to take a break and consider what they just talked about. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to consider, wow, what was it like for me before I confessed my sin to God? When I ignored my sin, what was it like? What did I feel like? What did David feel like? It felt like the life was drained out of him. It felt like God was disciplining him, making his life really, really hard. Why? Because he was ignoring his sin. I'm supposed to think about that. Now we move on. Verse five says, I acknowledged my sin to you. What does that mean? Well, God already knew about it. Why does David have to acknowledge his sin to him? Well, because that's what the Bible talks about when we, we talk about confessing our sin. That's the first step to confessing your sin, acknowledging I have done wrong. So the question is like, Let's take a simple thing like disobeying your parents. Probably something that happened today for some of you. What does it look like for you to confess your sin? It doesn't look like for you just to remember, oh, I remember that happened. It's different to just remember it than to say something like this. God, I disobeyed my mom. God, my mom told me to leave at a certain time and I didn't do it. God, I know that I lied to my parents about something. I covered it up. I acted like I didn't really do that wrong thing, but I did do that wrong thing, and I lied about it. God, I am a liar. God, I lied. See, that, that's how we're starting to confess our sin, acknowledging it to God, saying, I did that. Look what it says next. It says, and I also did not cover my iniquity. So instead of saying, oh, God, I know that I shouldn't have, have, have said that, right? instead of doing that, saying, God, I lied to my mom, I should not have done that. I was so wrong to do that. God, I, I lied. I didn't just exaggerate a little bit. I lied about that. Right? Like using even strong language about what you've done when you pray to God about this. I acknowledge my sin to God. I did not cover it. I didn't try to act like, oh, that didn't happen. God, just kind of forget about that. Right? That didn't happen. Right? Nope, not doing that, not covering it. It says in verse five, I said, quote, this is what David prayed. I will confess my transgressions, plural, transgressions, not just one, but many. I'm going to list out the things that I've done that were wrong, and I'm going to list them out to God. 
you might be asking the question, why do we have to do that? Doesn't God already know? It's like, well, that's what it looks like to confess our sin. This is a helpful model for if you think, okay, am I forgiven? Have my sins been forgiven? Well, have you done this with God? That's the first good question. Have you really confessed like this? There's an end quote after, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So he did that. Then it says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How long did that take for God to forgive him? Did God say, you know what? I'll think about it. That really hurt my feelings. I I I will give you three days. I'll get back to you on that. No, immediately God forgives David's sin. Now what do you see after that? What's the word? Selah. So now we're supposed to pause and think, wow, look at how that happened. God sucked up my strength because I wasn't confessing sin. Then I did confess my sin. And immediately when I confessed my sin, look what God did. Immediately forgave me. It didn't take him 10 years to get back to me. It didn't take him a week. It took him an instant when I confessed my sin. He forgave me. Verse six, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. He's saying, hey, now everybody else, that was my personal experience, verses one to five. Now, hey, what should we all do as a response to this? David says, hey, if you're godly, here's what you need to do. When you sin, go to God fast. Don't wait. Don't spend a week thinking, I should probably pray about that and then forget about it. No, go to God. Offer a prayer to him at a time when you may be found. He's talking about God here. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That's the picture of a flood, right? Anytime a flood is used in the Bible, it's always a bad thing, right? Um, You remember a time when God flooded the world with Noah and what did he do? He saved Noah in a safe place. It's like, if you think about elevation wise, the boat started on the ground, but the more water, what happens to that boat, right? It lifts up and it's kept in a safe place. The ark was the only safe place for, for anybody on the planet. It's like the rush of great waters when God judges the world again, when he brings his great waters of wrath, so to speak, and he sweeps everyone away in his wrath. Who's going to be saved? Who's going to be kept from God's judgment? He says, well, the ones who confess their sin. Verse number seven, he says, you are a hiding place for me. Although I deserve to be judged with just like everybody else because I confess my sin, God, you forgave me. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Instead of shouts of the enemy saying, I'm condemned for what was wrong, now it's like around this guy, David, now it's like there's shouts of deliverance. It's like we won a battle. It's like we escaped an enemy and now we're shouting for joy because we're safe. Verse number eight says, I will instruct you and teach you the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now we're learning something about what to do here. Verse nine says, don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule right? Those animals that you just have to hit over and over again to tell them where to go, right? And if you have a, a mule or a horse that's not trained, right? Some of you who, who, who deal with like animals or maybe you like petting zoos or whatever, you know that there's a time period with animals where you have to like break them in. Like you got to teach them before they'll go where you want them to go. And some animals will never be broken in. What his point is, just don't be like a horse that you have to keep smacking over and over again to say, go, no, go this way, go this way, go this way. Once you train a horse or a mule, like maybe they'll obey you better. But he says, don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule. Just do what God says when God says it. Stop being stubborn is what he's saying. And David, I think, can look back at a time where he, in verse 3 and 4, was stubborn. He was like that horse or that mule. He says, don't be like that, which must be curved by bit and bridle. Right? Imagine you got to put something in their mouth and tug it with the string, with a rope to get them to not go in a certain place. He says, don't be like that with God. When God tells you no, say, okay, I I don't want to be forced around. I want to just do what God says the first time. Verse number 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So cool. It's like when before he was going to be surrounded by enemies. Now it's like God's love surrounds him, encompasses him, circles him around. He's completely safe. Why? Because God has forgiven his sins. Verse 11 says, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous one. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. He's saying, hey, if you're forgiven, you got a lot to thank God for. Because you at one point were guilty, but now you're forgiven. The question for you and me, for some of us, is am I even forgiven? Am I forgiven? And maybe for some of you, you think there's no way I could ever be forgiven. I mean, if you, John, if you knew what I did, then 
I don't think God could ever forgive me. Or maybe some of you think I don't need to be forgiven. I haven't done anything that bad. Both of those are wrong. The only right response looking at a passage like this is saying, I am a guilty sinner. I am a guilty sinner. I have done what's wrong. I've done evil things that have displeased God. And the only way that I can ever be safe with God is if he forgives me. That's it. He needs to forgive me. And you call on him and trust him to forgive you. And that's what this passage says for us. Now, when you go through this passage, I think there's four main things. That's your four points tonight. Four things that you can learn about confession of sin and forgiveness, okay? So we're going to only talk about four things. I know we just went through that passage. Four things here. First one is this. I want you, as you look at verse 1 and 2 and 10 and 11, I want you to actually grasp and understand the real value of full forgiveness. I want you to grasp the real value of full forgiveness. The reason I say this is many of us don't actually consider all that it means to be forgiven. Maybe you think you don't need to be forgiven. Or others of you just assume, of course I should be forgiven. I mean, I'm a sinner. God's a forgiving God. That's just how it works. No big deal, right? Well, I want you to think about that is a big deal, that God would ever forgive someone like you. He would ever forgive someone like me. In the first verse, there's three, or the first two verses, there's like three movements. The first one, he says, blessed is the person whose transgressions are forgiven. Right, their law-breaking is lifted off their account. Their debt is canceled, okay? I want you to write down Colossians 2, 13 to 14, which says that you, he's talking to Christians, says that at one point you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. It's the same phrase, forgiveness, trespasses, right? When we break God's rules, the transgressions and the trespasses, same thing we break his rules, we're forgiven. How does God do that? Have you thought about that? Can God just forgive you? Some people think, oh yeah, God could just forgive. The Bible says God cannot just look at you and act like you didn't do what you did. Do you know why? Because God is a perfect, holy God. He has to deal with everything that's wrong. If God stopped being holy, if God looked at people and said, you know what? I'm I'm not going to care about what they did. What, What would happen is God would, in that moment, if he ever chose to make an exception to this rule, God would stop being God, he would stop being the rule of the universe, and everything would fall apart, okay? So God always has to deal with sin. Every wrong thing that you've ever done, do you realize that God has to deal with it somehow? Either you will deal with it, or he will deal with it, but it has to be dealt with. I think a lot of times when we do what's wrong, we think it just, it just goes away, okay? It never just goes away. And that's a hard truth. But the reason I say that is something has to happen. What does the next verse, Colossians 2.14 say? It says, well, here's how God dealt with it. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside. How? Well, by nailing it to the cross. Here's how you can be forgiven. There's one person that can do it. It's Jesus. If Jesus does not take your sin you cannot be forgiven. You just can't. Any other person, like let's say your mom or dad want to step up and say, God, punish me and not my my kid. That could never happen. You know why? Because God would look at your mom and dad and say, well, you're a sinner. If I'm going to punish you for someone else's sin, I have to punish you for your sin. So it doesn't work. We need a righteous one. There's only one person who ever lived a righteous life. There's only one person who was even eligible to die on behalf of anyone else. And the reality is Jesus died on behalf of all of his people. Think about that. It's amazing. I think the problem is we don't value, we don't have the right estimate of what full forgiveness actually costs. Like, if you thought something was really expensive, you would think, well, that, I mean, that's impressive. Alexander and I were watching these videos on YouTube about watches. I don't know if I've ever told you. I'm kind of into watches. I like looking at watches. And there was this one video, it's funny, um, where it was having random people guess how much a watch cost. Right? And there are some watches that looked really simple, but they were like $50,000. Right? There are some watches that looked really complicated, but they were only like 150 bucks. And it was cool to see people guess on how much they were worth. And the reality was like, most people were really bad at guessing. This one lady was like, oh yeah, I don't really like that watch. Like maybe 150 bucks. And the guy says, this watch that you're looking at right now is worth $250,000. And she's like, wow, 
100 bucks wouldn't have covered it, right? She had no idea. It's like she couldn't even estimate how much it was worth. She would have just like treated it like anything else. But no, that, that, that watch cost as much as like, a, like two Ferraris. Like that's crazy. That anything could be worth that much. So when you think of forgiveness, how much is it worth? That's the question. How much do you really think it's worth? Because if you only think it's worth 150 bucks, you might not care so much about it. But if you understood the half of what it actually cost, you would never take it for granted again. First Peter 1 says that the payment for your sin was not silver or gold or money or millions of dollars. That's not how it had to be paid for. It had to be paid for by the one righteous life. First Peter 1.18 says that Jesus, like a perfect spotless lamb, he paid for our sins. Transgressions forgiven. Another thing, sins covered. What does it mean for your sins to be covered? Like you did wrong things and now they're covered up. It's like God won't treat you like you did those things anymore. That's what it means. Imagine all the things that you've ever done. Because you know the book of Revelation says they're all written down in a book. We're going to be judged based on what we've done, what we've said. Like it's all there. Like we can't erase the history. Like it's all there. It has to be dealt with. Micah 7, 18 and 19, the end of Micah's book he asks God a question. He says, who is like you, God? Who's a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God chooses to love us. And in his love for us, Romans 5, 8 says, he chose to die for us while we were still sinners. Verse 19, he says, he will also have compassion on us again. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. It's the idea of taking something and just stomping on it. It's like God takes our sins and, and, and stomps it out. Right? Like can you imagine maybe you're at a campfire or something, you've got like a little you know, spark that comes off, like maybe a little thing of ashes that comes out of the fire, right? And you don't want it to start a fire outside, so you have to like stomp on it, right? Because that's what God does with our sin. It's like it gets there and God steps on it. He puts it out. It says he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea, right? Okay, go, go throw your backpack off a cruise ship and see if you ever find it again, right? It's not happening. It's gone. You'll never see it again. You could, I mean, rent a submarine and you're still not gonna find it. It's gone. Right? It's there somewhere. Maybe in 100 years someone will find it, but like it's gone. When God says he casts his people's sin into the depths of the sea, the point is he treats it like it didn't happen gone, forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, right? It's like your sin, although it's on your record, God takes it off your record. He scrubs it out. He says, nope, I'm going to treat John like he didn't do that anymore. It's gone. Forgiven, full forgiveness. What about for the things you haven't done yet? Full forgiveness. What about the things you did a long time ago that you forgot about? Full forgiveness. That's what God offers not partial. It's full. Romans 4, verse 6, Paul actually quotes this passage. So Paul's talking about how you can be forgiven. And some people had questions like, okay, is it possible to be forgiven if you haven't like done good things? How is that possible? And, and Paul says, just remember this. This is Romans 4, 6. He says, just as David in the Old Testament also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Quote, here's what he quotes. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count no sin. He's quoting this passage. And what's the point? He's saying it is possible for your sins that you've done to be taken off your account. And likewise, it's possible for the good things that someone else did to be put on your account. That's what the next chapter is going to talk about, Romans 5. That in Adam, we all die. But now in Christ, we can have imputed righteousness, which means like someone else did good things. Jesus did good things. And God can take those good things that he did and say, I'm now going to treat you like you did them. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. But that's what is included in full forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And verse 21 of that passage, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 21, really famous verse. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Like, 
God treated Jesus like a sinner. Why? Because of your sin. And now you can be treated like you're a righteous person. Why? Because of his righteousness. That's what it means to be fully forgiven. Like, do you grasp? Do you really get the value? Because I have a hard time writing this point because here's the problem. I think you can't even do this. I don't think I can really do this. I'm trying to grasp more of the real value. What is the real value of full forgiveness? Frankly, I don't think you'll ever get it. I don't think I'll ever get it fully. But the more you see your sin and the more that you see your wrongdoing and the more you see that God is holy, the bigger this actually means. The cost just goes up and up and up and up. But the thing is, you can have it for free today. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, sin covered, iniquity is not counted against them. Problem is, David went for a while with his sin kind of hanging over his head. And that's what he says in verse three and four. He says, for a while, my sins I didn't deal with and God made it hurt for me for a while. Point number two from verse three and four, I want you to expect pain from God. Pain from God when you ignore your sin. Expect pain from God when you ignore your sin. That's what you should expect. That's what I should expect. When I ignore my sin and act like I didn't do something wrong and I act like I didn't do it, well, I should expect God to do something to me. I should expect God to give me pain. What kind of pain? Well, here it says, his bones wasted away. His strength was dried up, right? That sounds pretty physical to me, right? I can't simply say, oh, well, no, it's not, it's just, I just feel bad. Well, that happens too, but what God does oftentimes is zaps your strength because of guilt, because of unconfessed sin. Like, so whenever you are feeling really bad, I know this is an odd thought, but your first question should not be, okay, what medicine should I take? Okay, I need fluids, I need sleep. Like your first question whenever you're feeling bad should be, God, what are you you trying to teach me here? Is there something, is there an area of sin that I'm not seeing? Is there something that I'm unwilling to give up for you? Is Is there something, God, is there anything? That should be our first response. And sometimes as we search our heart, we see, no, there's not. And then we can say, wow, okay, whew, this is not discipline from God. And this is just a trial that God has given in my life. But James 1 says, how should we treat our trials? As hard as it is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith in these trials will produce steadfastness so that you'll be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. You want to be more holy. This is an odd topic, expecting pain from God. And I know not all pain from God is the result of sin. The book of Job talks about a guy who he didn't do something wrong to deserve that stuff. God just chose that that's what he wanted for his life. He learned a lot through it. But I want you to see, as odd as this sounds, but Romans 1 talks about how, Romans one twenty eight in particular, it says that God gives people up to their sin when they keep saying no to God. What I mean by that is, if you feel conviction for your sin, like you feel bad, like you feel a pit in your stomach, and you're like, I did what's wrong. I do need to be saved. I'm not forgiven. I know I'm not. Like, you feel that, and you say, nope, I don't want to deal with this. Nope, I don't want to deal with this. You do that for long enough. Here's what God says. Okay, okay. I'll stop letting you feel the, the pain of conviction. I will stop it because you're not responding. It's like people die, so to speak, before they die. People lose their chance, even before they lose their chance, when they keep saying no, 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 and they push it away, which is why for many of you, I fear, because I've seen it happen so many times. Not that there's this crazy high percentage of high schoolers and college students who die, but I've seen so many high school students, I've seen so many college students die on the inside by saying no to God one too many times, and God says, all right, I'm, I'm done pursuing you can have the world if you want. And now they, they live their life. And they're going to reach the end of it and realize that their life was a vapor and that they should have responded to God when they were sitting in the little plastic chairs in 120 East. They really should have. So when we see that pain from God, when we ignore our sin as a gift, it kind of turns the tables, right? It's like if pain is a gift, how can pain ever be a gift? Well, if God's trying to tell you, hey, get, get in your attention, that's a grace. He's, he's calling you out of your sin. It's like this week I had something weird happen to me. Um, it's still kind of weird. And I, I'm concerned that maybe there's a problem, but maybe not. Um, I was 
pulling the curtain back on Sunday, and, um, and the curtain rod fell off, and it hit me on the hand, right? Which is like, whatever. It's a curtain, and it's really small. It's, it's flimsy. Um, but it hit me in such a way on my nerve on the top of my hand that it really hurt. Like, it felt like I got shot. Like, it was like my whole arm went numb, and my hand, I like went, it was like a dead hand. I was like, what in the world? Like, I must have hit the nerve, right? And Alexander would, like, I think, no offense, but I think she was, like, laughing, like, what, what happened? Like, because it, like, looked like it was just, like, a little thing fell on me, and now I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh, oh what just happened? And she's like, oh, what? What happened, right? I'm like, I don't know. Like, this really hurt. Wow, it really hurt. And you know, it doesn't hurt all the time, but multiple times a day for the last like three days, my hand goes to sleep. Like it just will go to sleep and I can't feel my fingers anymore. And I have to like, it's weird. And like anytime I just touched it right there. So sorry. I mean, none of you are doctors, so it's fine. Um, but like, if you touch it at all, like it, it just probably what happened was it like hit the nerve and it probably did some damage of some kind, probably not that bad, but like any, anywhere you touch around it, it starts to like feel this like electrical, like kind of buzzing sensation. Like when you touch a nerve, that's kind of what it feels like everywhere on the top of my hand. And like anytime I put my hand in my pocket, like it's right here, like it starts to, to kind of give out on my finger. Like I need to wake it back up. It's maybe it's bad. I should probably go check it out, but I probably won't. Um, but it reminded me of something that your nerves are really sensitive, but it's a good thing that they're sensitive. If they stop being sensitive, like let's say on Sunday, instead of just the curtain rod falling, let's say it was like a sledgehammer and my hand, I just busted that nerve, right? I guess that would have been possible, right? Well, then my index finger would have been severely damaged. I could, I could not play golf anymore. It scares me. Um, <laughs> like I just, I don't know what happened. I probably couldn't type very well, right? I probably couldn't shake your hand and have a dead finger. I don't know how it all works. But the point is, it'd be bad if I couldn't feel. Because think about all the, the nerve endings that are on, like all that electrical current, so to speak, gets sent up your arm, right? God designed it that way. It's amazing. If, if it broke, if the connection was broken, you couldn't feel anymore. The sensitivity is good because let's say I put my finger in something that's hot and I'm getting burned. You know, if I don't have any feeling, guess what happens? I don't know my finger's getting burned, Right? Pain is a, is a gift from God oftentimes to tell us something, to tell us, hey, that water's too hot, right? Get your hand out of there. You're going to burn your skin. Like God has designed it in such a way, there's, there's a sensitivity, is a grace because it keeps us out of danger. It's the same thing with our hearts, right? If your heart is sensitive to sin, that is a good thing. What you should fear the most is your heart being dull to the sin. Most people live in a place where their heart is dull to the sin, and God has to wake them up. Expect pain from God. A couple of verses for you here. Psalm 51, verse 7. God, or David writes, he says, Purge me, right? get rid of this sin. He says, Then I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So it's like God broke his bones. And now David's saying, God, you broke my bones. Now I see it. I was running away from you. I, I just want my bones to rejoice now and be happy that you broke them. It's like, what? Why would my bones be happy that God broke them? Well, if it brought him to repentance, then it was a good thing. Revelation 3.19, Jesus speaks to the church there and he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So like if I love you, if I love you, Jesus says, I'm gonna correct you. You're going to sit in sermons sometimes, and you're going to feel like convicted. That's a sign that God loves you. It's not a sign that he hates you. It's a sign that he loves you. He's drawing him to himself, drawing you to himself. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Don't just kind of repent. Don't just say, okay, I'll, I guess I'll try to do what's right. No, get fired up. I will do anything to do what's right. I, whatever it takes, whatever friends I have to get away from, whatever music I have to stop listening to, it's over. I will get rid of it. Be zealous and repent is what that means. Hebrews 12 talks about how God disciplines his sons, his people, right? If you're not a real Christian, God won't discipline you in the same way. You might get some repercussions for your sin, but God doesn't have the same interest in getting you to stop sinning in the same way if you're not a Christian yet. If you're a real Christian, God will discipline you in a unique way. It says, you got to remember that for a short time when we were kids, this is Hebrews 12.10, our fathers disciplined us for a time that seemed best, 
but just know that God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's true whether you're a kid, it's true whether your phone gets taken away, whatever your discipline is, like it doesn't feel good when it happens. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. If your parents have disciplined you or continue to discipline you, you know what that means? It means they love you, okay? If your parents don't discipline you, that doesn't mean that they they care more for you because they don't discipline you. It's actually the opposite. The more your parents discipline and try to instruct and guide, well, biblically, it means the more that they love you and care about you, assuming you're actually, you know, getting disciplined for things that you've done wrong. It's a point of, of, of love. God does the same thing. He wants to train us by discipline. So David confesses his sin. He feels that he confesses his sin. Point number three from verse five, he's honest and he confesses his sin. That's what I want you to do. Be honest with God and confess your sin. Be honest with God and confess your sin. Three things. He acknowledges his sin. He says, I don't cover it up. And I'll take responsibility. I'll say, I did it. He names the sins by, by name. I did it. I'll take responsibility. I lied. I cheat. I stole something. I lied to that person. I used bad language. I did it. Like, that's how we confess our sin. We don't just say, oh, God, I'm sorry for, for not doing good things. It's like, no, no, no. Be specific. Say what you did. Tell God exactly what you did. Ask for forgiveness. Because God forgives. It's interesting. Did you notice that the word cover shows up in verse 5? Do you see where it also shows up? It shows up in verse 5. I did not cover my iniquity. Where else does it show up? Interesting. Shows up in verse 1. It says, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. I thought you said it was a good thing to have your sin covered. Do you see the difference? It says, you know, when you don't cover your sin, when you bring it into the light, so to speak, for God, guess what God does? God takes it and he covers it. But if you try to cover it, guess what God's going to do? He's going to rip that cover off and expose it one day. John 3 says that people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. They think that they can hide in the darkness. They think that they can hide in secrecy, but they don't realize that the spotlight of God's justice will expose all their evil, and they'll be exposed on the last day. John, 1 John 1 says that we should confess our sin to God. 1 John 1, verse 7. I want you to write it down. 1 John 1, 7 to 10 says, but if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, so we're close as Christians, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So like if we're close to God, guess what that means? Any sin that we commit, even now, even in the future, guess what God does? He pays for it because Jesus cleanses us from all sin. First John 1, 8, next verse. says, if we say we have no sin, if we say, oh, no, 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 I don't know. I, I mean, I might, everyone makes mistakes, but I don't really like sin, sin. I, mean, I don't really do anything that, that bad. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You're just lying to yourself. If you act like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong, you're just lying to yourself. And the truth is not in us. But, verse 9, if we confess our sin, if we agree with God, if we're honest with God, yeah, I did that, yes, I shouldn't have done it, and then you get specific about what you did that you shouldn't have done, it says, he, God, is faithful, that means he'll do it every time, and he's just, that means he is righteous to do it, even though you're a sinner. Think that through. Go back to that first point. How can God do that? How can God take your sin and act like it didn't happen? It's impossible. Well, because someone has to take it in your place. Jesus can pay for your sin. But you have to ask. You have to trust. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That's the first thing. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then it's like he gets it out of your system. You confess your sin to God. Say, God, I don't want to do this anymore. God, I confess I did this thing that was wrong and this was bad and I shouldn't have done it and I covered it up. God, please forgive me. You do that, then guess what God does? He forgives you. He lifts it off, so to speak. It's like the burden's on you. He takes the burden off your shoulders. Now you're free. And then what does he do? He cleanses you from that sin. He doesn't want, he, like you, doesn't want you to do that sin anymore. So he makes you more righteous. Next verse, he says, if we say we have not sinned at all, we make him a liar. We're saying God is a liar and his word is not in us. If we claim that we haven't sinned, not only are we lying to ourselves, but it also says that we're calling God a liar as well. Both of those things are bad. Another verse I want you to write down, Psalm 51, verse 3. Psalm 51, verse 3, write it down. It says, I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. 
against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So I've done what's wrong in God's sight. But in God, like, it, it's in front of God. It's not just in front of my friends. Even if you have done things that nobody knows, like nobody, it could just be in your mind. And you still feel like, oh, I'm caught about that. Like I'm guilty. Well, confess it to God and say, God, I've sinned against you. And really, you're the one that matters more than anybody else. You might say, well, will God accept that? Right? Is that payment? You're confessing is not a payment. Don't think that if you confess, God just has to forgive you, right? Sometimes we think that, like, oh, well, if I confess, right, God just is forced to forgive me. Yeah, try that with anybody else, right? <laughs> try it with anybody else. Imagine someone does something wrong to you. Say someone tonight, after the narrow, punches you in the face, like hard, like where your face is black and blue. Like, let's say it's like a, a big punch, like, like a big, like a lot, maybe, maybe whatever, once. Still bad, right? You're thinking, okay, I just got punched in the face. And they say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Are you like, oh, thank you for apologizing. I forgive you. Absolutely. I'm just so glad you apologized. Like, you know, that's not how it works, right? But think about it, right? I think sometimes we just assume that, oh, yeah, if we confess, they're obligated to forgive me, right? Just know this. If God forgives you, it's out of his grace, we, we sometimes don't get how gracious God is with us when we confess our sins. And he does it every time. That's not something we should just say, oh yeah, God just has to do that. No, that's grace from God. That's a gift from God. Another thing for you to write down, Proverbs 28, 13. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Right? You try to hide your sin, try to act like, nope, I don't do that, nope. Maybe some of you will lie about that and you'll say, nope, I, 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 don't, I don't do those bad things, right? Whoever tries to conceal it will, will never prosper. But you confess it, bring it to the light and forsake it. Confess and forsake, that's so helpful. It's not just saying, oh, I do that. It's like, I do that and I'm not doing it anymore. I do that and I will not do that again. That's what it means to forsake, like leave it behind. It's like bringing something out of the light Imagine like a, like a stolen bag of money, right? You know, you ever watch those bank robbers and you don't watch bank robbers, but I just imagine like in the cartoons where they have that big sack of money, right? With the dollar sign on it, right? On the, on the stick, on the end of a stick, like a knapsack, right? And they're running away, right? And they look like they came out of jail with the, with the stripes, the black and white stripes. Like this is a very cartoonish picture, right? Um, but in order for that person to confess and forsake, they not only have to say, I stole the money, Right? They, they have to say, I stole the money. Here it is. Give me whatever punishment I deserve. That's what it means to confess and forsake and accept whatever punishment follows. Here's the amazing news from point number one, though. God gives full forgiveness when we confess our sins. There's a story about this in Luke 18 where there's two people that go into the temple and they pray, and one of them acts like he didn't do anything wrong. One of them says, nope, I didn't do anything bad. I didn't do anything wrong. Another one goes and says, yeah, I did what was wrong. I sinned. And then he said, God, be merciful to me. God, just show me mercy. I've sinned. He says, that one went to his house justified. Like God forgave him. He didn't forgive the other one. The other one was righteous. The other one goes to church law. The other one shows up every week to small groups, but doesn't confess their sin. The other one comes off the street, so to speak, has never gone to church, and now he confesses his sin, and God forgives him in an instant. What's the difference? One of them confesses their sin, and the other one doesn't. Don't think that if you've been to church for a while and you do a lot of good things that, oh, well, you don't have to confess your sin. We all have to confess our sin to God. David transitions in verse six. He starts saying, hey, if you're godly, you need to seek God now, right? I just want to encourage you. That's what David's trying to say. Seek God now. He can be found right now. Do you realize that? Like the guilt is on, on you and you're thinking, well, do I have any escape? Is it possible for me to be forgiven? The Bible says, yes, seek him now, though. Point number four is this. I want you to repent and be forgiven before it's too late. There comes a time where it'll be too late for everyone. Romans 1 says, yeah, there's going to come a time for everybody, so to speak. If they push God away, God will say, fine, your heart can be hard. That's fine. Um, you can enjoy your sin, but you're going to pay for it later. This idea of seeking God when he may be found, um, it's similar to that passage we looked at in Isaiah 55, now, that feels like a long time ago, but when we were looking at Isaiah 
the book of Isaiah, we preached one sermon on Isaiah 55. It was called The Offer of Salvation, right, where God says, you know what? You can be forgiven, but you have to forsake your way. You have to repent. Isaiah 55, 1 says this, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Like you can have it for free. This full forgiveness is offered to you for free. You don't have to pay for it. Someone's already paid for it. Later on in that passage, verse 6, Isaiah 55, 6, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Right? If you're convicted of your sins, guess what? Who's done that convicting? Right? God. He's near. So, so ask him to forgive you. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Forsake them. Leave them behind. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You think about, you've got an opportunity to go to God and be forgiven. If you have that opportunity, don't squander that opportunity. Right? Some of you have been convicted so many times, like you've heard this message and I'm like the 50th person who's told you. But what happens is, it's what happens in Matthew chapter 13 with, with the parable of the sower, that the evil one comes and snatches up the word from your heart. Right? I want you to realize that if you're constantly convicted about your sin and you feel bad, but then you say, I'm not going to do anything about it, just know what happens, okay? Satan wants to take the word away, and, and so far for you, he's been successful. If he's constantly taking it away, he's been successful. Another passage for you write down, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, in a favorable time I've listened to you, in a day of salvation, I've listened to you. I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today, now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. I don't, I don't know when you're going to have an opportunity later. Hebrews 3, verse 12 to 15. Why don't you just turn there? Hebrews 3, 12 to 15. We're going to end there tonight. Hebrews 3. Everyone get their Bibles and turn there. New Testament, towards the end. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. This guy's going to warn his people and say, hey, you need to listen up. God has a warning for us in this passage. Actually, in fact, the book of Hebrews, some say it's a book full of warning passages. Here's the warning. It says, take care. Be careful, my brothers. Listen to me, is what he says. Lest there be in any of you, you plural, this group of people, Let's be in any of you plural, you group, an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He looks at a group of people like you and he says, hey guys, be careful. Like look around, start to look around and realize that there might be in some of you an evil and unbelieving heart. You, you, you're going to church, you're doing some things, but you really don't believe any of this. You really are like, when can, when can the sermon in the small group just be done? When can I pick up the basketball again? When can I play ping pong? Be careful because there are in some people an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from living God. Walk away at some point. Verse number 13, what are we supposed to do? What are all the Christians supposed to do? They're supposed to exhort, push one another on every day, as long as it's called today. So in this time period, while we have the opportunity, let's continue to push one another to do what's right. It says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? If you go for long enough without people speaking into your life, you will get hard in your heart. You won't respond to God's word so well anymore. You want to be sensitive. You want to be soft in this way as opposed to being hard against what God tells you to do. Verse 14 says, for we have come to share in Christ, talking to the Christians, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What's the point? There's a lot of people that don't do that. Right? And they have never really come to share in Christ. They're not real Christians yet. Verse 15, as it is said, quote, Here's the thing that I want you to hear. If you have not repented of your sins and trusted Christ, listen to this. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. There was a time when Israel heard God's voice literally and they hardened their heart. They, it was the generation with Moses. We're reading about it in the book of Numbers right now in our daily Bible reading. It's like they heard God's word, they got it, and they said, yeah, no, don't really want to. Don't really want to do that. Some of them are like, oh, sure, we'll do it. And then when they were tempted with sin, they're like, no, actually, we like sin better. 
Right? It's like people who grow up in church and they, they hear the sermons and they're like, yeah, I kind of like that. But then they go out in the world and they're like, no, you know what? I like that better. Right? That's what that generation did as a whole. They complained against God. But here, here's the, the thing for you to hear. Let God speak to you through his word. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't say, no, I'm not going to repent. Don't do that anymore. You've done it for long enough. Just turn. Be forgiven. Think about what God can do. God can forgive you of your sin. The problem is a lot of people like to hang on to their sin, but they don't realize that hanging on to their sin will kill them. I read another article this week about um, pets killing their owners. Apparently it happens. It happens with dogs. There's a bulldog that like really messed up his owner's face, a little old lady owned this bulldog and she had to get like surgery on her face because this bulldog got really mad and scratched her face. That wasn't so bad as um, the bear that someone was keeping. Someone kept a black bear in their backyard. They went to clean the cage and the bear just killed him. Um, There's another one. Guy owned a, a mountain lion for some reason. And um, guess what happened? Um, the worst one I read about was a guy who uh, was called a hoarder, which means he doesn't throw anything away. So he lives in his house, right? He doesn't throw anything away. Um, he kept spiders as pets, just wild spiders. Apparently, one of the spiders that he was keeping as a pet was a black widow and bit him. And because he was a hoarder and didn't you know, have that many friends and family, um, at some point, the neighbor came over to check his house, and there's the dude who's been dead for days um, because the black widow, his pet black widow, um, bit him and killed him. Um, you might say, well, that's why I don't keep black widows in my room as pets, right? But I want you to think about why you don't. Why don't you? Because that's gross, right, number one, and because that's dangerous. You know, that could kill you. The same thing with your sin. If you want to hang on to your sin, your sin could kill you. It kills everyone who doesn't turn from it. As much as you think you wouldn't keep black widows, the reality is people keep their sin all the time. I don't want you to keep your sin. What should you do if you keep a black widow at your house? Uh, kill it and then throw it away. Or if you're maybe a little nicer, maybe put it in a nice little cup and then give it and throw it away, right? It's forsaking your sin. Right? That's what we got to do. So tonight... In small groups, and even we want to give some time um, outside of small groups afterwards, I want us to start identifying what those sins are, and then I want us to confess them, bring them into the light with God, and ask for forgiveness, and, and see what happens when we trust God, asking for forgiveness. We get to experience that blessing of full forgiveness. So let's pray for that right now. God, please, please impact us more from this passage. I pray that we'd feel the full weight of what David said when his bones were wasting away, where he made his life difficult because he ignored his sin. Pray that for those of us who are going through hard things right now, really hard things for some of us, that we would consider um, the reason why and we'd just check and make sure that it's not because of discipline. And if it is because of discipline, I pray that we would turn immediately. Pray that tonight would be a good night of self-reflection where we start to think back on our lives and think of ways that we've wronged you and start to list those out and to catalog those and to confess those. Pray for the students tonight who do know you and are real Christians. I pray that this sermon would motivate them more than ever before to take note of their sin and to confess it and forsake it and repent of it every day. Pray also for the, the ones tonight who are not saved, some of them who think they are and maybe are deceived. I pray that tonight if they feel this conviction that they would run to you and trust you and that you would completely forgive them. We know that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart, you will not despise. So I pray that you will not despise any of these who come to you in repentance and faith tonight. Please save them like you promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.